live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Saudi Aramco, the oil giant confirming it's going public this year. McDonald's shakeup, the CEO ousted for a workplace relationship, and Souk's success. We speak to the boss of Amazon in the Middle East. It's Monday. Let's make a move. to first move once again. Happy Monday. We may have turned the clocks back here in the United States this weekend, but I can tell you there's no turning back for bullish investors this morning. We are in global rally mode. Take a look at U.S. futures right now. We are set to add to Friday's gains. The Dow also set to open in record territory today following the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 on Friday. But it's no way nearer just a U.S. story. We're seeing great gains in Asia and for Europe two Asia tech stocks boosted by reports that U.S. firms will soon get licenses to sell to China's Huawei. And in that vein, too, President Trump over the weekend talking about a U.S.-China trade deal signing. That, I think, also helping sentiment right now. What about Europe, though? European stocks right now sitting near two-year highs, shrugging off survey data this morning showing the manufacturing sector contracting for a ninth straight month. It echoes what we saw from U.S factory data in fact on Friday we talk about this a lot it's a common theme here on first move investors continuing to discount mixed economic news and I think the two main reasons one trade deal hopes we talk about them again and again but also I think central banks here riding to the rescue with fresh stimulus what about earnings season though too we're now 75 percent of the way through earnings coming in around one percent lower than last year but three quarters of companies have clearly beat well-managed expectations. Now, speaking of expectations, great expectations, perhaps in certain quarters. Let's get to the drivers because it's official. The world's most profitable firm will go public, Saudi Aramco, to list shares in Riyadh. John Defterius is on the story for us. John, it's happening finally. Staying closer to home in Riyadh, which is an important point. Sweeteners offered, it seems, by the firm too. But is the bottom line here that there's been a rationalisation here on valuations, which is allowing them to come to market now? Yeah, I think it's a rationalization of the valuation itself, uh, Julia, but also a very big desire to get this thing out the door. Uh, this is the mothership of Saudi Arabia, representing 70 percent of revenues. I'm in the headquarters of OPEC. It's apropos because this is the de facto leader of OPEC, Saudi Arabia, and a founder back in uh, 1960 at the same time. It's hard to argue with the numbers that Aramco puts out. We have the nine-month figures of $68 billion, which are down on 2018, uh, like for like. But they produced $111 billion uh, last year, two times the level uh, of Apple. And if you think about it in terms of its scale, if you combine the reserves of the top five oil producers in the world, or the IOCs, Saudi Aramco has all of them combined in one company. So perhaps it's worth the valuation comparison. I added up the market cap of those five companies. It's $1.4 trillion. You want to get a target of $2 trillion the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia wanted? I think that's where the realization is coming in. I would expect, though, Julia, they'd like to beat the number that Wall Street is thinking at $1.5 trillion and also try to outgun Alibaba at $25 billion of the record IPO in September 2014. 
Going only in Riyadh right now helps them in that process because of the Saudi billionaires that are there, the national pride, and having the float into the market to support them. Remember, we talked about New York. We talked about London. We talked about Hong Kong, Tokyo, Shanghai. Right now, it's only Riyadh with a desire to make sure this goes smoothly out the door, and we don't have a date yet. Yeah, and to your point, it's such a huge flag bearer for the reformation, the reforms that Saudi Arabia is trying to be perceived as seeing getting done here as well. But I love your uh, I love your point about the earnings here, because as soon as they came out this morning, I was comparing to the likes of Apple, Exxon, Alphabet, add them together. And they're still dwarfed by what this company is producing here, which is which is incredible. But you pointed out steep drop between 2018 and what we've seen in 2019. The fact is, tying up with OPEC plus restricting output is hurting their earnings here. And it's a balance trying to keep all prices up to make this company look juicier has a burden when you're trying to restrict output. And we're seeing that playing through in the earnings here, John. Yeah, indeed. Uh, they are the author of the OPEC plus agreement and that special alliance with Russia. Uh, they, in fact, are cutting about 500,000 barrels a day per the agreement, but they've added another 400,000. Let's not forget they had the shock in September with the attacks against the processing facility. Uh, and there's two ways to look at this, uh, Julia. Do they want stability that OPEC Plus provides around $60 a barrel, or do they go for revenue and market share? The new uh, Minister of Energy and the half-brother of the Crown Princes argued they're going to stay with OPEC Plus right now. Then you have to say risk or reward when it comes to Saudi Aramco. They did get their facilities hit. That's a risk. The reward, they were up within a week and got full production up within a month. So they're extremely resilient. And who can argue with the cost per barrel, 2 to $4, whether it's onshore or offshore, that beats everybody in the business, and they have better than 260 billion barrels of reserves. So you have to make a play on the energy transition. Will the low-cost producers survive over the next 20 or 30 years? Aramco, at this point, listing in Riyadh is saying, yes, we will. Yeah, quite fascinating here. And particularly for a company, when you're pledging to pay a minimum of $75 billion worth of dividends, you've got to keep that oil price up or you're at risk there too. John Defterius from OPEC headquarters there. Great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Next driver, Under Armour, under fire. Shares in the sportswear company plunging pre-market. The Department of Justice is engaged in an accounting probe of the firm. Paula Monica joins us on this story. I think lots of eyebrows raised on this one, not only because, of course, we know the CEO is set to leave in January of next year. What do we know about this accounting probe? Yeah, this is uh, very troublesome, obviously, for Under Armour investors. The investors, the uh, company is being investigated by federal regulators for uh, possibly shifting sales from one quarter to another. The company has said it will cooperate with the probe, but obviously investors are very nervous. As you pointed out, CEO Kevin Plank is set to step aside, stay as executive chairman, but he is passing the baton to Patrick Frisk, another executive there in early 2020. And that timing of that CEO transition change is now very suspicious because of these accounting issues. And by the way, their revenue outlook for the rest of the year is not very good either, adding to the pressure. Under Armour, even before this, was struggling to compete with the likes of Nike and Adidas and also Lululemon. I mean, it's quite incredible if we look at the timing on this as well. 26 quarters of at least 20% year-on-year revenue growth. 
then they've struggled for the last two years. The final quarter of 2016, when they, they missed their, their targets there, was when we suddenly saw the, the sort of gear shift for this company. And then I look at the fact that they had three CFOs from 2016 to 2017. I'm just maybe adding one and one and making far bigger numbers here, but there's reasons no, to I, be cautious, I think. I, I now scratched that we're my beard it. for a good reason, Julia. I yeah. think it is an ex- a yeah. very astute observation to point out that this is a company that's had several chief financial officers in the past couple of years. That is something that Wall Street clearly has noticed and has made them wary. The CFO is one of the most important executives, obviously, at any company. And when you now have a company that is dealing with the possibility of accounting irregularities, it does raise the question of what did these CFOs see and why did they leave? So it's obviously a very big concern for Under Armour. And again, if Under Armour was doing well but had accounting issues, that would obviously be bad news. But this is a company that is struggling against all its major competitors. So that just compounds the problem. Absolutely. And perhaps hindsight's perfect, side, But yes, huge, uh, huge questions at this stage. Paula Monica, thank you for that. All right, next driver. McDonald's CEO out over the weekend too, fired for having a workplace relationship. McDonald's say he violated company policy. Claire Sebastian joins us on this story. In the new Me Too world, Claire, no questions asked, no debate here. The CEO ousted. What do we know about this? Yeah, Julia, clearly uh, when it comes to a relationship between a manager and a subordinate, that is a clear no-no. We know that a lot of companies have been updating their policies around this, and of course they have to be seen to be enforcing them. So we know that they put out a statement on a Sunday night. You always know it's going to be something big when it comes on a Sunday night. The company says Steve Easterbrook, who's been in the job now for four years, exercised poor judgment. We also have an email that Steve Easterbrook wrote to all McDonald's staff where he called this a mistake. He says that given the values of the company, he agrees with the board's decision that it's time for him to move on. And that's part of this, you know, Julia, the values of the company. This is a well-known family brand. Uh, McDonald's has also faced criticism and indeed a number of lawsuits alleging it doesn't do enough to protect employees from workplace harassment. So so given all of that, given the zeitgeist around the Me Too movement, they really couldn't afford, even though Steve Easterbrook is credited with really turning around this business, they couldn't afford to be seen to not be enforcing these critical policies. You know, it's interesting, uh, PwC did an analysis of 2,500 of the world's largest companies. For the first time in 19 years, more CEOs were dismissed for ethical lapses than for financial performance or board struggles in 2018. It's quite a fascinating uh, shift that we've seen. But what does this mean for McDonald's? Because in the time that he's been there, we've seen the share price double, he's pushed the digitization. What do we think about the transition now and fresh leadership and will the strategy maintain broadly the same here, Claire? Well, the company certainly is saying that it will. The, the man who takes over is Chris Kamchinski, who's been the president uh, of McDonald's USA. He gave an interview uh, on Sunday night to the Wall Street Journal where he said this isn't going to be some radical shift, radical strategic shift. The plan is working, he said. But if you look at the, the stock price year today, there are some challenges, uh, Julia. The sales have been growing, but they are facing competition. The stock has underperformed rivals like uh, Restaurant Brands International, which owns Burger King, like Wendy's. They just had an earnings miss. They've got tension with their franchisees, which of course are 95% uh, of their stores. So look, 
many uh, analysts do see Chris Kamczynski as the man to do this, but I am seeing one downgrade today from Piper Jaffrey. They say uh, that this can cause some disruption as they take a bit of time to build up a new team. So a little bit of caution on Wall Street on this. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the uh, stock opens up this morning too, and uh, perhaps a relative lack of reaction tells you something, particularly in light of what you were just saying about the last uh, earnings and the challenges that remain. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right. Let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories now that we are following around the world. Washington bracing for a big week in the impeachment inquiry into U.S. President Donald Trump. We've learned that four White House officials scheduled to give depositions in the hours ahead are not expected to show up. Lawmakers have scheduled interviews with 11 current and former U.S. officials to discuss President Trump's dealings with Ukraine. Police in Hong Kong clash with protesters for a 22nd straight week. Authorities say four people were injured during a knife attack on Sunday. It happened outside a shopping mall where protesters had taken, protests had taken place excuse me, earlier in the day. A thick blanket of smog is causing travel chaos in the Indian capital of New Delhi. Some flights have resumed after dozens were diverted from the city's international airport on Sunday due to poor visibility. New Delhi's chief minister says conditions are unbearable and the air quality has reached hazardous levels. All right, coming up on first move, kicking the week off on a high. The Dow looks set to hit fresh records, but is it a good time to buy? We'll discuss, plus our conversation with the super CEO, Ronaldo Muchawa, the man driving Amazon's push in the Middle East and beyond. Stay with us. We're back after this. Europe is the Welcome back to First Move Live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, where we're set to see fresh record highs for the Dow and to add to gains, of course, on Friday's session. All the major averages set to begin, in fact, in record territory. A warm glow, of course, too, from Friday's U.S. jobs report. And let's throw in trade hopes, a deal there. But factories, the manufacturing sector, still in a funk. European factory activity bouncing a little bit, though, in October. But the Eurozone PMIs, the survey data still remain in deep contractionary territory. Christine Lagarde may have a few things to say about that. Her first speech as the head of the European Central Bank comes today. It also follows, if you remember, those weak survey readings in the United States and in China last week. Chinese stock shrugging that off, though, rallying Monday and are in fact up more than 19% year to date. What's going on? Let's get some clues. Doris Dale, Managing Director at Hedgeye Risk Management, joins us now. Good Great morning. to have you with us. Always Happy Monday. You were pointing out, and we mentioned this on First Move on Friday, the divergence between China's private company surveys for the manufacturing sector and the official. And the official is far more bearish than the <laughs> private, which is eyebrow raising. It's eyebrow raising. And, and so what you're referring to is this sort of three-year high associated with the Kaishin survey and the sort of near three-year low associated with the official data. We continue to believe that the trend in the, all the Chinese data, particularly uh, social, uh, nominal GDP growth in secondary industries, which is the key measure to, met, to track as it relates to the Chinese economy, that's slowing at its fastest rate per the most recent data. So in this case, focus on the official data and the signals that well, that's giving not, you. Not necessarily focus on the official data, but focus on the rate of change in the official data. Important. Markets care about what's happening at the margin, not necessarily what's happening uh, from a static perspective. So what's going on? Because one of the other things that you've also been pointing to is what's going on in terms of credit and liquidity actually tightening yes. for the financial sector.
factory in, yes. in China. What's going on there and explain? Well, so you have a tale of two cities, right? So from a trending perspective, the U.S. dollar strength has been quant has been tightening financial conditions in the Chinese uh, Chinese economy just based on that composition of the PBOC's balance sheet. We can explain those dynamics further. But what we saw last week is actually now the dollar is starting to make a series of lower highs it's associated with you know return of you know better growth expectations globally. We wouldn't necessarily chase those growth expectations right here now because we still think the market is a good little ahead of itself. But certainly if the dollar can start to feed on itself and, and make a series of lower highs from here, then that would ultimately alleviate some of the pressure we've seen in the Chinese economy from the financial so sector. So you're saying what we've seen is that a stronger dollar yes. is basically creating further pressure here and preventing China from well, being able to... Well, that's the number to... one, number two, and number three reason the Chinese economy has continued to slow despite repeated attempts at easing out of the PBOC. It's restricting their ability to stimulate the economy. Oh, yeah, totally, absolutely. In fact, it's going in the opposite direction. <laughs> Bingo. Bingo. So when President Trump is calling on the Federal Reserve mm -hmm. to, to lower rates, and arguably that would then reduce the strength in the U.S. dollar, um, it's actually relieving some of the pressure on the Chinese economy. If he wants to turn the screws, he'd be telling the Federal Reserve to just do, do nothing. Yes, but I think we've passed that point in the investment cycle, right? We're now talking about 2020 yeah. and his prospects for re-election. So now the prospect of, of, of him actually ultimately tightening the screws to the Chinese economy, we think that's off the table. At best, we're just going to get an amelioration of tariffs in terms of the December uh, tariff. So how optimistic are you with the broader concerns that we're seeing, particularly in the manufacturing sector, in whether we're looking at the Chinese data, in fact, or the United States trade data, that a phase one trade deal that we're talking about right now relieves that pressure? Yeah, yeah, you're laughing. The great so I can answer deal that 2019. Myself. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. So it's, for us, it's about isolating which factors we want to take advantage of as investors. Right now, the only thing we have a ton of conviction on at the current moment is that inflation is set to pick up both domestically and broadly. And so the ways in which we want to be allocated have investors be allocated to that. It's just taking advantage of inflation itself. Don't be long anything that's that's tethered to recovery in Chinese or U.S. demand, but rather just be long things that happen that tend to go up when the dollar goes down. That's namely energy, that's tips, that's commodities that aren't linked to China, that's cattle, soybeans, cocoa, wood, all these sorts of things that we want to be uh, taking advantage of. I mean, some of the things have been really beaten up. Energy yeah. is a classic example totally. of that. So actually, you're, you're taking advantage of lower valuations yeah, here as well. Yeah, we like it when things that we like for cyclical reasons are cheap. That's fantastic. And coincidentally, we like when things that we don't like are expensive, simply so that, that helps. Are we focusing too much on the manufacturing data? I mean, we keep pointing out in the show it's a small fraction of, of the U.S. economy in particular, and consumer no. strength is important, but you've been talking about income gains and yeah. wage gains as well. Well, they're actually slowing. So if you think about aggregate income growth, it sort of combines the total amount of people employed, the average hours they work, and the average amount of money they make per those hours worked. That's actually at 4.17% per the October, uh, from the October uh, jobs report. That's a two-year low. And so what corporations have been doing to save face on earnings have been cutting back on CapEx, CapEx in recession, three consecutive month down months year over year, and then they've been cutting back on, on, on sort of employment and, 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 and income gains. And so you're seeing that sort of deterioration help ameliorate their outlook for earnings. But you can't have two, both, right? The consumer can't be great and earnings can't be better than expected. This, this obviously is an unsustainable Something gets dynamic. squeezed and right now it's, it's workers. Yeah. Um, CEO confidence is also declining. Oh, I guess uh, I'll bring it back one to... One of the worst to, charts out there. Yeah, I'll bring it back to to our phase one trade deal again. Do we think that if we don't see tariffs or we even see some relief on the tariffs that the US has enacted on China, that some of that confidence comes back? Because yes. we've gone from 8% capex growth, spending, investment from companies, to basically flatlining. That's pent-up demand if they regain confidence. Well, I don't know that it's pent-up demand in the context of where we are in the business cycle, but I do think something is really important has happened in recent months. We've gone from peak negativity associated with the potentiality for recession right. in late August and early September 
to taking that off the table. It's been it's been commensurate with this sort of phase one of the trade deal. But for us, it's really just been about the rate of change in the data, probably piking at their fastest point then. And now the data start some data starting to stabilize, some data starting to slow, but at a, at a slower rate. And so I think the market's having a very appropriate debate in our protect in our nomenclature, going from quad four to either quad two or quad three. Quad two is actually explicitly bullish, whereas quad three is just better than quad four. I mean, while that debate is happening, though, I've just mentioned that the Dow's set to hit record highs yeah. today, the Nasdaq, the S&P totally. 500. Well, that's what happens when you, you got the defenses pinned up here, and now you finally get a recovery in some of the cyclicals. Now, they're not breaking out to new highs yet, and we still think that debate needs to be resolved in terms of ultimately what's going to lead the market higher from here. But right now, one thing we do have a lot of confidence on is being on the right side of that chart, i.e. inflation's accelerating. Santa Claus rally. Santa Claus, perhaps, but not from this level. No. We certainly think the biggest divergence that still exists out there is between the Fed's policy path and what's priced into financial markets, either via OAS or Fed on futures. That needs to compress. The dollar can start to go down, and then you start to see a broad-based Santa Claus inflation rally. But right now, between now and then, investors are far too complacent on this sort of growth recovery phase. They're too optimistic about the fact that for now, to provide for now. more We think they easing. need to sort of ratchet those expectations down a little bit. Fantastic to chat yeah. to you, as always. Darius Dale there, Managing Director at Hedgeye Risk Management. All right, I've got another story for you. British Airways owner spreading its wings in Spain. They're buying Air Europa for $1.1 billion. Anna Stewart is in London flying the story for us. Talk us through it. A push into Spain here. They already own quite a lot of assets there, so they simply like this market. Okay. Yeah, definitely consolidating in Spain, but also strengthening their presence in Latin America. No surprises there, actually. They tried a, a joint venture with American Airlines and a Chilean airline earlier this year, and it got blocked by Supreme Court. So not a surprise move here. It'll take its share of passengers flying from Europe to LATAM from 19% to 26%. And also, Julia, it's very much saying today it wants to see Spain's airport in Madrid become a true rival to Europe's big four. Very interesting idea. Take a look at where Madrid stands in relation to the big four airports. Heathrow absolutely dominates with 80 million passengers. However, that has been at running at 98% capacity for well over a decade now. The other three below it, all within a million of each other. So very interesting concept that Madrid could become a much bigger hub by connect more connections here. Of course, terrible context, such a challenging environment for aviation. We've seen a dozen uh, airlines go bankrupt this year alone. Julia? Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a complicated market at this moment. You know, I just look at this deal and I look at what they already own. Iberia, Euling, of course, the low-cost carrier level in Spain. And I wonder whether there's going to have to be uh, some remedies here to get antitrust approval. What do we think? I think it's highly likely. Speak to Anna today, they would agree. Check this out. In terms of their operating of airlines and routes within Spain, it's going to take it from 58% to 75%. IAG would own... Uh, three quarters of all domestic routes in Spain. I'm sure that might be an issue for competition authorities. I imagine we'll see some divestments. And that was actually kind of echoed today in the call or the Q&A about that as well. Julia? Yeah, interesting. What's uh, what does the stock doing? What's British Airways, what's IAG doing at this moment? Oh, let's bring it up. I haven't actually checked in since uh, the oh. show started. I imagine <laughs> it's ever so slightly higher. The joys of life TV. And I'm just told oh, we don't, we don't have even it. have oh. it. <laughs> we'll check that the market open. How exciting. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. Happy Monday is all I can say. Plenty more to come here on the show as we count down to the market open here at the New York Stock Exchange. A record high to be hit for the Dow, we expect, and adding fresh record highs for the Nasdaq and the S&P 500. Will we get them? We shall see. Stay with us. We're back in a few moments' time. Plenty more to come from First Move.
to first move live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell this morning. The CEO and the president of Time, in fact, celebrating a year since it was acquired by the um, by uh, Mark Benioff, of course, the Salesforce CEO. All right, as expected, we've got U.S. stocks in rally mode. The Dow hitting its first record high since July. The S&P and the Nasdaq also at fresh records too. Trade optimism, it seems, reigning this morning. Right now, as you can see, the Nasdaq up by some seven tenths of one percent. We've also got uh, plenty more earnings ahead, wrapping up earnings season with 80 companies from the S&P 500 set to report this week. We've also got Uber out later today, so that's going to be one to watch. Disney earnings also going to be key, I think, and interesting this week out on Thursday. Breath, though, could be a little better. One sector that's been left behind is small caps. The small cap Russell 2000 index down around 1.5% over the past six months versus the S&P's 4% rise. An interesting story there, as you can see. All right, let me talk you through the global movers today. McDonald's trading lower. The CEO, Steve Easterbrook, has been fired. He violated company policy by having a consensual relationship with an employee. The president of McDonald's USA will now take the helm. Right now, that stock down, and I say down only, but it's only down at some 1.8%. So we're going back to what we were saying earlier on in the show, continuity perhaps in strategy here, taking the brunt off that news. Now, let's take a look at Under Armour, down 15%. Let's call it new chinks in the armour. Reports say the US has launched an accounting probe into how the athletic gear company books sales. The firm did announce stronger than expected earnings before the bell this morning, but it's lowered its 2019 sales guidance. We also have a merger in the medical device sector. Shares of Wright Medical rallying. It's agreed to be acquired by rival Stryker for around $4 billion in cash. Wright Medical up right now 30% in the session. Let's bring it back to uh, news we're covering today. Last week, in fact, I travelled to the UAE and visited Dubai's Internet City. It's a hive of activity for entrepreneurs focusing on new economy opportunities and things like fintech, retail and entertainment. Now amid increasing digitisation, e-commerce is seen as a huge growth opportunity across the Middle East and North Africa. Just to give you a sense of perspective here, the market was worth just over $8 billion back in 2017, but it's forecast to triple in size to over $28 billion by 2022. Now, one man who's capitalized on this growth is Ronaldo Mushawa. He's the founder of e-commerce platform Souk. If you're in the UAE and you type souk.com into the browser, you'll get this because Amazon bought the platform for $580 million in 2017. Ronaldo is now the vice president for Amazon in the region, and we talked it through. Listen in. We pivoted from a consumer C2C listing side to more a B2C uh, business that, you know, solve problems for, for customers, uh, but also help uh, businesses come online. And that's where we really saw the growth exponentially in, in this region. But from going from an auction, um, an online auction tool to a B2C business, you lost 80% of your revenues overnight. As an entrepreneur, you made I mean, a it was a tough decision, but a, a clear that the growth and the opportunity. When you look at consumer, especially in this part of the world, people like brands, people like new products. We felt that that's where the bigger market is. 
to pivot, you had to do less, maybe to do more in the auction. We had, you know, an automotive section, a real estate section, collectibles. These are things that don't work very well online in terms of a complete transaction. So in one side of the site, we were asking customers to trust us to pay online. And then you had the classified section that's asking customers to call each other. So we felt, you know, by doing less, we focus, we solve uh, the hurdles in front of customers. Our main issues were delivery, payment, things that we needed to focus on. And that was kind of a pivot point uh, for Soup. Give me the numbers. What kind of usage are you seeing now in this region? I mean, it, what proportion of payments are done via credit card and the payment system that you use? It, it varies. So the region yeah. is multi-country. So you go uh, in the UAE, we have a huge expat population and a very large credit card penetration. So you see the majority, 70, 80% of payments are done with credit card. As you move to Saudi Arabia, you see more debit cards being used online because that's the most prominent cards available to customers. You move to a country like Egypt where still credit card and card and banked customers are less than 50% of the population. You see a much smaller percentages uh, of customers paying online. The trend is, is there, it's changing as customers are now more banked, as you have more products available for them, as trust is being built with the services we are offered, and we're seeing growth. So every year we see an evolution of how customers are moving more online from a, a cash-based uh, e-commerce. Let's talk about Amazon. Yeah. Was that the decision that you made? You wanted access to a global supply chain? Is that what it came down to in the end? I mean, two things. A, the DNAs of the two companies were fairly similar. We're in very similar businesses that Amazon is in. You know, we, we, we had the marketplace business. We have, you know, the countries that we operate in, delivery, logistics, fulfillment for merchant. So those are all programs that Amazon run as well. So there was a lot of DNA in terms of matching between the two cultures. But also we thought for this part of the world, we want to, A, enable the customers to have more choice, and that's leveraging Amazon's technology, innovation, as well as the product and the global supply chain. But also I felt for my team, it was a way kind of to infuse talent, to, to give our team more opportunity to become part of one of the most innovating companies in the world, the, the company that really advocates for customers, and a lot of the DNA and values that we bring, Amazon had. So it was really not a very difficult decision in terms of getting these two companies together. Could you have competed? If, if you'd have decided not to, to become part of Amazon, if you decided to go it alone and Amazon would have come to the region, could you have competed? I think it's a good combination. I mean, we knew a lot about our local customers, so we have the local know-how. Amazon is a global company, so we were serving customers in different ways. Amazon was shipping products to this part of the world. We are focused on local, domestic uh, products and making sure those get delivered fast. So I think we had our customer base, so it was a love brand as well. But I think together we're just uh, we're providing you know, global experiences with a lot of lo local insight to make sure the service to the customer is just a lot better today than it was then. Talk to me about what the future holds for or Amazon as it's now become here in, in yeah, the I mean, UAE? As I said, we're super excited. The, the, the overall, if you see the offering, how the service have changed uh, since we've launched actually now Amazon.ae in this part of the world. So there's a lot of excitement going on. For us in the short term, we have this big event called White Friday. It is like one of our biggest sales of the year. We, we built this, this event about six years ago to create excitement about e-commerce, to bring brands to this part of the world. And this is upcoming. It's about in the next 20, 25 yes. days. So <laughs> we all geared up. It's an opportunity for us to do a lot more in a very short span of time and serve 
of, you know, millions of customers across the world. So that's my immediate kind of exciting thing that's happening next. It will be the first time on Amazon running White Friday, but also on, on Souk. This is our sixth year, so it's super exciting. Yeah, you definitely got that sense from him. After the break, there's more from Ronaldo Mushawa. The Zook.com founder tells me how the startup spirit is being boosted in the Middle East and what contribution he's making too. Stay with us. That's after this. Welcome back to First Move. Now, before the break, we were talking about the growth of e-commerce in the Middle East and North Africa. Well, with greater volumes come greater investment opportunities. Ronaldo Mushawa says funding is becoming easier as the region opens up, particularly compared to his early experiences hunting for capital investment. Listen in. Definitely the Amazon uh, acquisition of Sioux and coming to the region is a testament that the ecosystem is changing. From the days when we started, we had to go all over the world to try to raise, find investors who A, understand our region, B, also understand the, the space that we're in. Today, I see the ecosystem have changed a lot. We have a lot more VCs and local funds as well as global funds that understand the region, the exits that have happened, be it the Maktoub exit uh, to mm -hmm. Yahoo, Sioux, to Amazon, uh, Karim, to Uber are also a testament that you know there is enough the market is big enough for the big players to come and I think this is where we're seeing the change. You're also providing seed capital to startups here. Yeah, we love uh, companies that focus on mobile and solve local problems and complete our ecosystem. Not a while back we invested in a company called Wing which enabled delivery which helps our delivery fleets and teams, uh, you know, scale. Also in groceries, we have invested in a company called InstaShop. So we've done many investors' uh, investments, but mostly they are around empowering customers, supporting our ecosystem, and they're mostly mobile-driven businesses where we have seen a huge opportunity in growth. What support is available from a government perspective here in the, in the UAE or elsewhere that, that you could pinpoint and say that's helping foster an entrepreneur, a startup culture here, or is more support needed? Over the last two, three years, there have been many law changes to kind of, uh, you know, harvest the ecosystem and build an ecosystem. So you see more incubators that are easier for entrepreneurs to come in. The laws allow you to set up these uh, companies a lot faster than it used to be. And also, we, uh, Dubai is a place where you're able to attract fairly good talent from across the world. People like to come here. Uh, there's a lot of support. There's a lot of expats in this part of the world. So talent is here, the ease of setup, and overall now we have a bit of an ecosystem of an entrepreneurship culture. So sharing and learning is key to grow an ecosystem. So when I work with entrepreneurs or we mentor them, it's, it's a both way, right? I'm learning from them and I'm impressed by their innovation. Just are they want to learn from our experiences to avoid some of the hurdles and mistakes that we face and try not to repeat them. So this is what's created sharing, I think, and having like-minded people in a similar place, brew that ecosystem. And this this really has happened in Dubai, but not only in Dubai. We're now seeing it in Jordan. We're seeing a bit of it in Riyadh. Definitely Cairo has now a good startup environment as well. So I think the region is just embracing entrepreneurship as a way to improve your life, opportunities to others. And I think the taboo around failure has kind of been erased. It's okay to try things. Maybe sometimes they fail. You need to fail faster and learn from them. But I think this culture wasn't there. People say, why aren't you in a multinational? Why aren't you working in a big bank? <laughs> You've got a U.S. degree, go work at a big company, and that's not the
the case now. You see young people wanting to create. When they talk to me, they talk about the journey, how, how it started, what are the, some of the things that they can learn from. And you see a lot more acceptance and around the community, around these type of ideas versus just going and working at a big company. I, I love that. The idea of the, uh, the societal pressure or the societal mindset perhaps starting to change. What about I mean, my dad wanted me either to be a doctor or an yeah, engineer. Sure. He was like, go get a job in one of those. So <laughs> you can, even though he was a merchant, in a way, he was an entrepreneur. And I felt like marrying engineering with technology and the trade and the business that he had just kind of is a seed for what Souk was started to be. It's so important. What about for women, too? Because in the, the past few days that I've been here, there's a real difference between foreign people working yeah. here and the opportunities that Dubai or the UAE presents versus nationals and they've all talked to me about to some degree the societal pressures to to stay at home if you have children or the challenge sometimes that balancing those things represents what about that how does it take I, for I think that our to team evolve? is now much more diversified is it? i think uh, on our team we have uh, many women who have very key roles who helped me throughout the journey to create souk and now be part of amazon we're seeing many of the new startups in finance uh, in, in, in you know, uh, verticals like fashion, beauty, many of them are run uh, by women or founded by women. So I think, again, just similar to all of us, the ecosystem is there and people are venturing out to take these steps, you know, and it starts with one step, starting something you love probably that you know a lot about and then just build around it. So I, I'm optimistic and I think there is still a long way to go, obviously. Uh, but you have to start somewhere. And there are good role models and examples of companies led by women, and there are good entrepreneurship uh, ecosystem and some funding that's going and supporting these initiatives that's helping kind of the startups get going. You still have to have a good idea. Yes. So you can't just do it just because you know, you're an entrepreneur. Your ideas have to be good. You have to think of your customer. The fundamentals don't change much, uh, regardless, you know, where you are and, and if you're being incubated or not. You still have, you know, to back it up with, are you solving a real problem for a real customer? How do you think of the customer? What, what is the love product by the customer? How you make his life easier and how you simplify things? So those innovations need to be there still. Ronaldo Mushawa there. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, we're live in London at the World Travel Market, where global economic slowdown and global protests are playing on the minds of exhibitors. Oh, look, I spy Richard Quest. We'll look at the impact next. Stay with us. Hey, hi, Richard. Boardroom brief. Microsoft tested out a four-day work week in Japan. It appears to have been a success. Productivity measured as sales per employee jumped 40-40%. The shorter week also meant the company saved on resources such as electricity. Wow, I'm all for that. Apple has pledged $2.5 billion to combat the housing crisis in California. $1 billion will go towards jump-starting affordable housing projects. A further billion will go towards first-time home buyer assistance for teachers, nurses and first responders. Shares of Ryanair are up around 9% in Dublin. The airline posting better than expected profits. However, it cut its forecast for passenger numbers because of further delays to deliveries of Boeing 737 MAX jets. It has more than 200, in fact, on order. 
Now, as those earnings from Ryanair shows, travel and tourism remains big business, which is why numbers for one of the industry's made train fares are also quite staggering. The annual world travel market in London creates almost $3.6 billion worth of deals. And this year, 5,000 exhibitors are vying for the attention of 51,000 participants. But while tourism and travel may be a lucrative industry, it's also a relatively fragile one. Global economic slowdown and unrest in Chile, Lebanon and Hong Kong also hitting some key tourist hotspots pretty hard. Richard Quest travelled to London to take the pulse of one of the world's biggest industries. Richard Quest, I believe that was a royal wave for first move earlier uh, just now. Tell us what the pulse is telling you about the outlook here and great to have you with us. Thank you. Uh, good morning or good afternoon from World Travel Mod. Look, it's 10 percent. The, the rough figures are anywhere between 10 and 12 percent of the global workforce is in some shape or form involved in the business of tourism and travel. And if sometimes the industry doesn't get the full attention it deserves, you certainly notice this, Julia, when there are problems. And if there's one underlying theme, I think, this year in the industry, it is resilience. How do you come back, for example, from the Bahamas, where you've been hit, devastated in some parts, by a hurricane? If you're looking at places like Sri Lanka, which had a terrorist attack earlier in the year, how do you come back? How do you bring tourists back? Egypt has had its own share of problems. We've got at the moment Hong Kong, where you're looking at the numbers sharply down. Well, in the case of Egypt, I asked the very successful Egyptian tourism minister, I asked her, what do you do when your country is faced by a crisis, whether man-made or natural. What I would tell any country is that as much as the tourism sector has opportunities, it faces challenges. And the idea is to be fast, to be open, to be prompt, uh, and always have your international and domestic partners with you in each uh, shock that you face. So we never shy away from uh, admitting something has happened. The fascinating part, Julia, about this whole place is that they're selling dreams. Bucket list in some cases, honeymoon, lifetime trips, business trips. They're selling the idea of where you, I and everybody goes on holiday. But it is a business and it's hit by geopolitical issues, it's hit by strategic issues and economics. And when you and I, in our various venues, talk about downturns, these people feel it, and it's a massive business that will affect thousands, millions of jobs worldwide. Yeah, it's such a great point, Richard, as well. And, and to our point in the introduction, we were talking about the sheer quantity of deals that get done there. What are we looking at and what specifically, what kind of deals actually do get done there? Glad you asked, because you've got on this side of the building, you have Asia, India and the Middle East. On this side, you have Europe, the UK and all the various things. And what you've got is lots and lots of booths. Sometimes they are just single booth for a single hotel. Often it's for wholesale distributors for, for example, hotel, hotel rooms, uh, airline seats and the like. And buyers and sellers come here to get a good deal a wholesale deal, you want to renegotiate your contract and therefore you're building up your portfolio as a tourism buyer. Later in the week, members of the public come here and they of course are here to see what where they might go. Where would you like to go for your next vacation? That's such a great question.
somewhere nice and warm, I think, just as the winter hits here in, in New York. <laughs> Richard Crest, thank you so much for that. Great to have you with us. One last look at the stock market right now. Broad-based rally, rally underway. Broad-based rally. Wow, that was a tongue twister. The Dow hitting fresh all-time highs. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq to the tech strong, the strongest sector in terms of performance that we're seeing carrying the wave over from the Asia session too. That just wraps up first move. But I'm going to leave you with a look now from dancers from Taiwan at the World Travel Market in London. We should have asked Richard to join them as well. I'm sure he can execute a perfect pirouette. I'll leave you with that. Thank you for watching. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.